I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, the podcast featuring live constitutional conversations held here at the NCC in Philadelphia and across America. On this episode, Jeffrey Rosen moderates a debate entitled, What is Citizenship?, produced in partnership with the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Jeff is joined by the National Constitution Center's Vice President of Content and Development, Sheldon Gilbert, who teed up the key legal and constitutional issues relating to citizenship today. Scholars Jaya Ramji Nogales of Temple University, John Eastman of Chapman University, and Ruth Wassum of the University of Texas at Austin then provided their takes on the ways that citizenship and nationhood are defined and challenged today. Here's Jeffrey Rosen, live from the Philadelphia Museum of Art, to get us started. Let us jump right into the central question of the nature of citizenship and birthright citizenship. We need to begin with the text of the 14th Amendment. I see Sheldon has up on his iPhone the interactive constitution of the National Constitution Center, which those of you who remember know is the most extraordinary nonpartisan constitutional platform in America. It's gotten 20 million hits since it launched. I want all of you who have not yet downloaded this phenomenal resource to download it after the show, because we're talking right now. Uh, and you will find this, uh, among the top legal scholars in America, both liberal and conservative, debating every clause of the Constitution, describing areas of agreement and disagreement. See how I do, Sheldon. I, we, I, I, when I taught at GW Law, Sheldon was one of my greatest students ever, so I'm gonna ask him to see how I'm doing on this test. Let me try to recite the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, and we'll see how we do. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. How's that? You got it. All right, yes, okay. I'm so, finally gonna give him a test. That's it, absolutely, it's, 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 it's good to be on the, on the other side. So Sheldon, what would you say was the central uh, purpose, the original understanding of that citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment? Well, if you listen to what Jeff just said, um, the, the section one of the 14th Amendment says that two conditions have to be met to be a citizen. You have to be born or naturalized uh, in the United States. And then the second condition that have, has to be met is you have to be subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And so the question is, what makes you subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Well, before we can dig into that uh, legal and constitutional question, uh, I'll just kind of set up the, a little bit of the history that the panelists can respond to about where that language comes from. Uh, and there are lots of different places you can start this story, but the original constitution that is uh, adopted in 1787, it mentions citizens, but it's a little bit fuzzy on what it means to be a citizen. Uh, what are the, the, the privileges or rights associated with citizenship? Who gets to be a citizen? It's all these questions are fuzzy. And because of that, for decades, there are lots of disputes about how one becomes a citizen. And in particular, uh, free African-Americans in the North for decades are fighting this question, trying to negotiate how they could become citizens and become considered citizens of the United States. And they come up with all sorts of different arguments for why they ought to be considered citizens under the original Constitution. You jump forward to a very important Supreme Court case before the Civil War. 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford, where the Supreme Court says that any uh, person of African descent, free or slave, can't be considered a citizen, uh, of, uh, can't be considered a citizen. And this provokes a lot of controversy across the country. And many scholars say, uh, helped accelerate the path towards civil war. After the civil war is over, there's a fundamental question of what to do with this class of individuals in the country, former slaves, and, uh, and free African-Americans in the North, what is their place in the country at that point? And this sparks constitutional debates, policy debates, public debates about how one becomes a citizen of the United States. The result, uh, uh, at least in part to that very large conversation and debate, is the 14th Amendment, which was adopted uh, 150 years ago uh, this year. And you know, we'll leave it to the panelists to discuss the, the key arguments on each side. Uh, but in a nutshell, uh, the, the key language is, what is, is 
is subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Who is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Uh, on one hand, uh, there are those who argue, and we'll talk about this in more detail, that uh, if someone has entered the country unlawfully, are they really subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? Or do they still owe a loyalty, a fealty to the nation which uh, they're, they're coming from? Are they subject to the jurisdiction of the United States in the sense that they owe loyalty to the United States if they haven't gone through a process to accept and, and, and affirmatively adopt that loyalty uh, and, and shift, their, uh, shift their allegiances? On the other hand, uh, the, on the other side of the equation, there's an argument that subject to the jurisdiction of the United States more or less means you're in the United States and you're subject to obedience to the laws of the United States. And, and the answer to that question, what does it mean to be a subject to the jurisdiction of the United States has profound consequences as the, as the panelists will talk about. Uh, it, it could mean that uh, a person who comes into the United States unlawfully and has a child here, uh, is that child and, and are the parents subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? That question is gonna help decide whether that child uh, is uh, eligible for a constitutional right to birthright citizenship, which is different from the statutory question of how Congress might grant citizenship. Uh, this, this profound question is found in the, those very few words subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Beautiful, that was wonderfully set up. And Sheldon, you have well uh, teed up this question of what it means to be subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Uh, some argue, and it should be said that uh, Professor Eastman is uh, the nation's most prominent advocate at the moment of the argument that if your allegiance is to a foreign sovereign and you are the uh, child of a uh, someone who is illegally in the United States, then you are not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And others argue, as you say, that if you're from abroad and simply have to obey the United States, you are subject to that jurisdiction. So now it's really important to hear the views of our panelists. Uh, uh, Professor Wasm. Uh, what do you think it means to be subject to the jurisdiction of the United States? And do you believe that the children of people in the United States illegally who are born here are birthright citizens or not? Well, of course I believe they're birthright citizens. And I think that everyone who is in the United States is subject to our laws and jurisdictions, except those that have been expressly carved out. And those are diplomats who, uh, because of treaties, because of the very nature of the relationships between our government and other governments, it's essential and recognized around the world that those uh, kinds of relationships are exempt. Otherwise, you're subject, in my perspective, now I am not a lawyer. Congratulations. So, uh, yes, yes, I, I, I you, guess you I say should. say that like it's an AA meeting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, even a, a I'm not even a recovering lawyer. Um, I also want to point out, um, because I worked many years for Congress, that while um, the Constitution didn't talk about how you became a citizen, there were certainly a lot of laws that were passed along the way. One of the earliest laws was the Naturalization Act of 1790. There was another one in 1795 and so on, where they spelled out um, how long you needed to be here, what the rules were, and, and very often judges uh, would be interpreting these, uh, uh, these laws uh, in a way uh, that generally was inclusive and recognized that anyone born here was a U.S. citizen, again, unless they were expressly carved out as a diplomat. Um, and the, the notable exception, of course, was the issue of slaves. And we're going to get into this probably when we talk about the census in a little bit um, because of, uh, of how uh, African slaves were viewed uh, uh, legally at that time. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty firm in my belief in birthright citizenship. Well, that is, thank you so much for that, Professor Wasserman. And your non-legal training has not stopped you from identifying a central issue, which is that as a former congressional staffer, you said Congress has repeatedly, starting from the very founding, recognized the uh, everyone born in the United States as birthright citizens. Uh, Professor Eastman, as you make the argument, which you've been making so influentially uh, recently that not everyone born in the United States is a birthright citizen. Please respond to that argument and also to Professor Wassum's suggestion that it was just the children of diplomats and also of Native Americans not taxed at the time of the framing who were meant to be excluded. Otherwise, everyone else 
born in the United States. And children and of invading armies. I wasn't totally sure how that would work, but children of invading armies. I wasn't as inclusive. That's there we right. go. Those, with those three exceptions, uh, well, it's well, been suggested. Uh, otherwise, you have birthright citizens. So, so the question is not what should be our policy or whatever. It's what the Constitution meant by those who wrote it and ratified it. And uh, they didn't have the notion of illegal immigration at the time. So we have to tease out of the debates, the relevant debates in an analogous context. How do you treat the Native Americans? Indians was the word they used at the time. Um, and and the, the, the person that introduced this language on the floor of the Senate, Jacob Howard, was asked point blank, you know, will this include Indians? They are most clearly subject to our civil and military jurisdiction. This was the view that juris, subject to the jurisdiction meant subject to the laws. Uh, and he said, no, uh, they won't be because they are not subject to our complete political jurisdiction. They are what the phrase was at the time, subject to our partial or territorial jurisdiction. Everybody within the boundaries is subject to our laws, subject to our territorial jurisdiction, but not everybody within our boundaries is subject to our complete or allegiance owing or political jurisdiction. And so the question was when they added that clause to it, which of those two ideas did they mean? And they told us. Um, the language that they were codifying or constitutionalizing was from the 1866 Civil Rights Act. It was a little more clear. It said all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are citizens. Now, some have claimed that they changed the language in the 14th Amendment to broaden and adopt a more uh, a, a robust birthright or use solely is the, the Latin phrase, uh, citizenship. But what they tell us is they only did that because of the controversies. Indian tribes were domestic sovereigns, not foreign powers. And they fixed that. And then there was a whole lot of controversy. Was this particular Native American taxed or non-taxed? Did they get citizenship? They got rid of those controversies by adopting the language they did. And they specifically distinguished people who were here temporarily, what they called mere sojourners, uh, who would not be given citizenship, but anybody else who was here, who taken up lawful domicile here in our country, would be would have you know, their children would be citizens. Um, and what they were t tapping into is a rejection of an old feudal notion, use solely. This Latin phrase uh, meant born on the king's soil, forever the king's subject. You could not renounce your allegiance. Well, we renounced our allegiance in the Declaration of Independence. It's the most eloquent renunciation of this use solely, this old feudal doctrine in human history. We renounced that and we fought a second war, the War of 1812 over this issue as well. Um, so at least that half of the old common law was, was, was dramatically rejected in this country. And I believe that they rejected the other half with the 14th Amendment as well. What would that mean? That would mean the guarantee of citizenship that the Constitution provides would extend to children of citizens and children of people who we had consented to have here lawfully and permanently domiciled, uh, green card holders in the, modern, in the modern infrastructure, but not temporary visitors and certainly not people who we had never consented to have here in the first place, who were here unlawfully. And that was the dividing line. And every year over the last 20 years in Congress, statutes have been proposed, bills have been introduced, including a famous one by uh, Senator Harry Reid uh, to, uh, to correct this. Bill Clinton asked, um, oh, I'm gonna draw a blank on, uh, on, on the Congresswoman uh, uh, who, who had a commission about this and said the same thing. Um, a number of scholars around the country that have looked seriously at those debates understand that this was the line they were drawing, subject to the jurisdiction, not as we modernly think of it, subject to the laws, or you're subject to the banking regulator's jurisdiction or the SEC's jurisdiction. That was territorial or partial jurisdiction, subject to this more fundamental allegiance-owing political complete jurisdiction is what they intended. Thank you very much for that argument. Uh, Professor Ramji Nogales, you've heard Professor Eastman's distinction between territorial uh, jurisdiction and more permanent allegiance. Uh, what do you make of that as a matter of the original understanding of the 14th Amendment, as well as tell us about subsequent Supreme Court cases interpreting the amendment and whether you believe those cases are consistent with Professor Eastman's argument? So I, I don't actually think so. I disagree. I think most actually scholars on this topic um, would 
have a different, who, who've looked, who legal scholars who've delved into the history have a different understanding that subject to the jurisdiction um, means subject to the courts and laws. And this does go back um, to this exception for the Native Americans because the idea was that Native Americans had their own sovereign territory and they were not subject to the courts and laws of the U.S. in the same way that diplomats were not. So it was a carve-out for people who were not subject to the laws. It was not about loyalty to the U.S. Um, and I also personally have a question about how that loyalty to the U.S. question plays out for dual citizens. I am a dual citizen. Um, I was born here in the United States. Um, what, what does that mean? Does that mean anyone who's a dual citizen um, doesn't have the requisite loyalty um, to, to, to be a citizen? Um, so so I, I'm not sure about that argument. I also, and I think it's Jack Chin who's made this argument, um, there were actually unauthorized immigrants at the time, and they were slaves who were brought here after the importation of slaves was banned, and they were um, <laughs> brought here in violation of the laws of the United States, and they were certainly um, envisioned as recipients of the largesse of the of the the, the equality that was endowed um, by the 14th amendment so so I, I I disagree with the historical arguments and and certainly the later decision Wong Kim Ark is probably what you're thinking of I think has solidified in the constitutional jurisprudence um, that um, birthright citizenship um, that the text of the Constitution should be interpreted to understand birthright citizenship and alongside these subsequent statutes that Professor Wassum talked about thank you very much for that well, friends, you can dig in further to the important arguments on both sides of this question by listening to the wonderful We the People podcast that the Constitution Center just recorded last week on the question. We had Akhil Amar against Professor uh, Eastland. Uh, and uh, uh, these weekly podcasts bring together the top liberal and conservative scholars to debate the constitutional issues of the day. So um, please check them out. Uh, Sheldon, our next topic is the census. Uh, as uh, Professor Wassum noted, uh, there, is, there are legal challenges to the decision uh, by the federal government to attempt to include on the 2020 census uh, only citizens and not non-citizens. Tell us what the government is trying to do and what the nature of the legal challenges is and try to tee up the arguments on both sides. Sure, so uh, the, the question is whether the Department of, Con of Commerce can add to the 2020 census a question that was not on the 2010 census. And that question is whether or not the respondent, the person who's being asked the questions from the census worker, is a citizen or not. Uh, so what's the, what's the, the legal uh, issue here? Well, there's a, there's a kind of a narrow statutory legal question. Uh, which is, did the Commerce Department go through the right process, the statutory process, to add that question to the census? So that's that's the legal question. But it's sitting atop uh, or, or, or alongside a constitutional question. Um, the, the challengers have argued that it was unconstitutional for the Commerce Department to, uh, to add that question because the, the purpose of the question, they allege, is to deter uh, those who are... Uh, uh, here un, uh, undocumented or unlawfully to deter those individuals from answering the census questions and as a consequence would not be counted in the census and could have an effect on, uh, on the, the uh, allocation of, uh, of all sorts of uh, different benefits that are associated with how many people are in, in your state. So the, the, the question is whether or not the, the Commerce Department uh, arbitrarily uh, discriminated uh, against uh, people who are not here, uh, who, are, who are undocumented, who are here un unlawfully, uh, or is trying to deter them from answering uh, the census question so that they won't be, won't be counted. How, the way this, this question has kind of come into the news recently is that the, the, the Secretary of, uh, of the Department of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, uh, has been asked as part of the litigation to be deposed, right? The challengers want to sit down and they want to ask him, why, you know, Wilbur Ross, do you want this question on the census? And the challengers argue that how that question is answered, what his motive was in adding that question to the census could help decide whether or not it was constitutional for that question to be added to the census or not. Thank you very much indeed for that. 
Uh, Professor Wassum, it sounds like there's some pretty complicated constitutional questions involving the motive of the secretary and whether he can be deposed uh, because you're not burdened with a legal training. <laughs> to, to dig I into can the, say whatever I you want. Have to dig into the wonkish details of that, but you do have great experience in Congress. Is it unusual for the Commerce Department to be asking the citizenship question? Give us a sense of the history of it. and, and, and The last time uh, the, the uh, question about citizenship was asked on a U.S. Census was in 1950. Uh, it was. It has been asked on and off over the you know early centuries. Uh, it is not generally seen as a germane question for the census. Um, and so when you talk about the, this as a constitutional issue, the difference between why they might be suing and what the legal hook may be in court. For example, the original uh, reason that uh, Commerce gave was it was to implement better the Voting Rights Act. Um, and uh, that was one of the, uh, the so-called reasons. Um, but the broader issue when you think about the citizenship question, I would, I would challenge your view that it's aimed at unauthorized aliens uh, to ask citizenship because it's really more, a, it has a, a much uh, broader chilling effect on all people who are um, not, maybe legal permanent residents, they may be part of mixed status families, that is, someone who might be married to an unauthorized alien, but they themselves are a citizen. Um, whenever the government comes and asks you these kinds of questions, will that suppress people's participation in the census? The real effect of suppressing participation in the census is how that will then affect the distribution of political power. I don't think, and again, I defer to my legal betters on the constitutional basis of this, but I don't think apportionment uh, of congressional seats requires that, that the residents be citizens to do apportionment. So there's no reason in my mind to ask about citizenship. Now, as a scholar of immigration, I'm always interested, did you naturalize, and you know, all of that, but I don't have to worry about the census because there are lots of other surveys um, that are sample surveys, uh, not a decennial census of the whole population, where you can get that information. And that has actually been the data that the Department of Justice has historically used in implementing the Voting Rights Act in the past. So. Um, for me, the issue is why do we need to ask, and um, if not, to have a chilling effect on participation. Thank you very much for that. So, Professor Eastman, you are not spared the obligation to wonk out on the legal arguments. Professor Wasm has told us it, the citizenship question was last asked in 1950, and it sounds from Sheldon's description that uh, challengers are claiming that to ask about uh, citizenship with the illicit motive of uh, suppressing uh, votes or chilling participation might violate is it the Equal Protection Clause? Tell us what the nature of the challenge is and what you think about that, yeah, that so, argument. I mean, I don't know the, the nature of the motives, but I, I, I always like to go back to first principles here. And the reason we have a census is to apportion representation. Uh, citizens are represented, not people who are here visiting temporarily. Uh, the language of the Constitution originally uh, talks about uh, uh, all persons, excluding Indians not taxed, and then three-fifths of other, the infamous three-fifths clause to try and mitigate the effects of slavery by not giving southern plantation owners more votes based on their slave population. Uh, but the Indians not taxed clause is an interesting one. If they were within our community, why were they not counted in the census? Because they were not part of the body politic. It goes back to the birthright citizenship question in a way. They owed their allegiance to a different sovereign. And so the Supreme Court takes up this issue a few years ago in a case called Evenwell versus Abbott. Must states exclude non-citizens from their reapportionment? And the court held, no, they, they need not. But it also suggested that they could. Now, that's a very interesting new development, but I think it goes to the heart of what representative government is and who are represented and who are not represented in the body politic. Uh, imagine two districts side by side in Texas, one largely consisting of uh, uh, non-citizen immigrants, whether lawful or unlawful, 
were not citizens. And the next one over, uh, uh, ex uh, existing solely of citizens. Half a million each, you've got 10,000 citizens in one and 500,000 citizens in another. They each get one representative. The 500,000 citizens are gonna say, why do we only get one representative and those 10,000 citizens in the next door district get one representative as well? They're diluting our vote. They're diluting the vote of citizens. So what's really at stake here in this fight is the question of, are we still gonna recognize a distinction between citizens and non-citizens in the very nature of representative government? That's really what the fight is. And yes, the last time it was asked on the decennial census was 1950, but it has been asked ever since then until 2010 in the, in the, in the mid-cycle American Community Survey uh, because this thing was important, this understanding of representative government. And who, now, that doesn't mean violate equal protection to say we're not gonna count those who are not citizens for purposes of representation, it just recognizes that the grand theory of the Declaration and its natural rights, universal rights, are applied in a particular place to a particular people that are a part of the body politic. That distinction between citizen and non-citizen is critically important to that understanding. The new fights are by those that would like to get rid of those distinctions and create a different kind of understanding of government. Thank you for that. So, Professor Ramji Novellas, Professor Eastman just reminded us of the Abbott case where the Supreme Court said that the states which set the criteria for federal elections aren't obligated to limit the franchise to citizens, but may do so if they choose. So, are the challengers, what is the challenger's response on the census? The, the claim is that you can't collect the information because uh, to do so would uh, deter participation, helps spell out the nature of the legal challenge and tell us if you think it's persuasive. Um, so, so let me just talk a little bit about this um, distinction that Professor Eastman is drawing um, because I think it's a little too binary um, between, um, so he spoke about citizens versus people who are just here temporarily. Um, and of course, um, as Professor Wassum said, there's a lot of gray space in between and, and there are a lot of um, different people um, who hold various immigration statuses, who have been here for a long period of time, who live in mixed status families, and, and there, there's a concern there that yes, even US citizens who live in mixed status families may be chilled um, um, from responding, but also permanent residents and, and other people who've been um, here in the US um, for a long time. And I, I think it's um, particularly pertinent that the three-fifths clause comes into play here because it's a question of about who we're gonna treat as a full member uh, of our society. And, and, and I agree, I, I, I think in some ways that um, our nation is at, at a point where we are um, evaluating and reevaluating that question. And, and, and I think that's why the, the census question is so important um, because it goes to whether um, we're going to have a, a class of citizens who have constitutional protections and then an underclass um, of, of maybe some citizens um, who, who uh, have relationships with, with folks of, of different statuses and folks of different statuses um, who form an underclass. And, in my view, that's not what America as a country um, has historically been about. And I think other countries like Germany have, have, um, have um, played around um, with, with some of these ideas uh, about who can participate in their democracy and who can't. And these exclusionary, this goes back to the birthright citizenship conversation, um, having very exclusionary restrictive citizenship um, has led to really profound problems in their society with um, integration um, and and um, and um, so so it all comes down to a question of, of who's going to be included and who's not going to be included and I and I think um, it's um, facile to say that the temporary visitors are not going to be included but there are many many people who are not citizens who have far stronger bonds with the U S um, that than just temporary visitors. Great, thank you so much for that. This is a wonderful example of constitutional education in action, and we're next going to turn to the DACA case, the Dreamers, amnesty for the so-called Dreamers. This is a policy question that's now being revived uh, in the uh, newly elected House. 
uh, but there are also a series of lawsuits. And Sheldon, they began under President Obama, where the Supreme Court, by a four to four split, held that President uh, d disagreed about whether or not President Obama could, by using an executive order, defer deportation for the so-called dreamers. Everyone agrees that Congress has the power over immigration, but when Congress hasn't spoken, may the president act on his own. And now President Trump uh, initially took the opposite policy and wanted not to defer uh, deportation, and the question was whether he could do it on his own. But there's a current incarnation of the DACA case. Tell us what it is and what the legal arguments are. Yeah, so there's a half a decade of litigation that just seems like it will never end. Um, but the, the, the latest uh, iteration of this is a, is a statutory question, but the statutory question is kind of sitting atop this constitutional separation of powers question that Jeff alluded to. Um, as, as Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, uh, President Obama uh, issued not an executive order, but uh, an executive declaration of sorts uh, called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals for the Dreamers uh, that it, in some, uh, some people argue uh, leapfrogged past Congress uh, to provide a new status for the children, uh, children who arrived in the United States uh, uh, unlawfully uh, for those, what, 700,000 or so uh, children right now, uh, that would defer any sort of legal action to remove them from the country and instead provide uh, a pathway, not necessarily to, um, uh, to, to citizenship, but at least to work in the United States, to study in the United States, uh, and, and provided other uh, legal benefits. Um, when President uh, Trump came into the office, uh, he rescinded that uh, executive action by President Obama. Uh, so the legal question is whether or not President Trump went through enough statutory process to undo what President Obama did, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of a, 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 a tough administrative law question that you, we don't want to get into tonight. Um, but the nub of the question is whether or not uh, President Trump had a good enough reason, uh, a non-arbitrary or irrational reason, for rescinding that executive action. And the Trump administration has said, well, yes, we have a very good reason for uh, un unwinding or undoing this executive action that, that President Obama did. Our very good reason is he never had the authority to do it in the first place. Uh, Congress didn't tell President Obama that he could do it. And in the absence of authority from, uh, from Congress to, to do this, to provide this kind of status to, uh, to dreamers, uh, he can't usurp the legislative role and, and do it unilaterally, right? So even though there's this kind of narrow statutory administrative question, did Trump go through the right process to kind of unwind or take back or undo uh, Obama's uh, executive action, the, the, the justification for undoing it is itself, in many respects, it's both statutory and, you know, at, at its core, a constitutional question about separation of powers. Thank you very much for that illuminating introduction. Professor Wasson, there's a lot of history on this question. What can you tell us about how presidents have acted unilaterally over immigration in the past? Was President Obama the first president to issue executive declarations or executive orders? And generally, what, how has Congress responded in asserting its own powers over immigration? And if you want to comment on the DACA case, we'd love to hear what you think. Well, certainly, um, I counted over 25 times in the past uh, before DACA uh, in 2012, was it 12? Um, that a, uh, a executive branch, either the president or, or in earlier days, sometimes it was the attorney general, would defer the enforced departure of foreign nationals in the United States who would otherwise be uh, subject to uh, deportation. There were several cases that were uh, as large or larger in number, uh, the most famous of which uh, was um, the Reagan administration and then the uh, first Bush administration's uh, decisions to not remove the family members of people who had legalized under the 1986 Immigration Act. That was something that had been heavily debated by Congress. Um, Senator Chafee, uh, John Chafee of Rhode Island had had several amendments that would go down where they tried to get the, uh, these a uh, upwards of a million people uh, who were in the United States uh, without status, uh, but um, someone in their family was eligible to adjust. 
and uh, the decision was made not to remove them, and they had this status. Uh, there were some earlier examples I could go into, but that's the biggie. And um, so while it is rarely used, it's generally done in a case where there has been legislative action, where there is a sense that Congress will eventually act. Um, the um, Congress um, at least once had passed the DREAM Act, which would have um, in the House passed the DREAM Act, and the DREAM Act has come up uh, numerous times uh, as part of broader immigration packages. Um, and it is typically had bipartisan support. So it met the kind of contextual uh, factors you look at when you think about, is this a group um, that uh, is meritorious of, of having relief from removal? Again, these were um, young people um, who would have been brought to the United States as children by their parents um, uh, without status. But, um, and there were a certain criteria for DACA that, um, you know, having gone to high school and been of good moral character, things like that, it enabled these young people uh, to get work authorizations, to get driver's license, uh, to con continue their education, uh, pursue other activities. And um, so it, uh, but they always knew, you know, and that's why they think the 800,000 that signed up was probably not the full population of people who would be eligible because it took a lot of courage for them to come out of the shadows and make themselves known to the Department of Homeland Security. It took a lot of courage for them and it exposed their families uh, to those vulnerabilities. So that's one of the reasons why the dreamers and, and the young people that we uh, associate with DACA uh, have captured the imagination of the American people and why there is such widespread uh, public support, if you look at the polling data, uh, for um, allowing not just them to have deferred action, but to actually create a path so that they could have uh, permanent uh, residence in the United States. Thank you so much for that extremely helpful context and for those thoughts. Professor Eastman, does President Trump have the authority to rescind the Obama executive order under statutes and the Constitution or not? Well, yeah, so one of the more interesting aspects of this is the author of the original DACA memo. It was a memo, it wasn't even an executive order, it was Janet Napolitano. Uh, and she's also the one that sued President Trump. Now, let's just, so they issued this without going through the statutorily required Administrative Procedures Act notice and comment rulemaking. Janet Napolitano just issued the guidance memo saying this is an exercise of our prosecutorial discretion. We don't have to enforce the law when we choose not to. Everybody recognized prosecutor's office don't enforce the law in every instance. They have prosecutorial discretion. The Supreme Court has raised a serious question, if I do it categorically rather than on a case-by-case -case basis, have I really crossed the line and suspended the law without legal authority? That's a very close call, whether that's what went on here. But they did it by a prosecutorial discretion guidance memo. Uh, and if it truly was prosecutorial discretion guidance memo, then the next prosecutor in chief could decide to prosecute the law in a different way. And that's the way prosecutorial discretion works. Uh, but, but the memo was struck down, not on the DACA memo, but the DAPA, DAPA memo, parallel, uh, the legal arguments are identical, was struck down because they didn't go through this notice and comment rulemaking process. That it was a substantive change in policy that the law required to go through this process. Then Janet Napolitano sued Trump for not going through the process that she herself didn't go through to put it in place in the first place. So it's one of the, the more interesting aspects of this. There are two pieces of it. Prosecutorial discretion not to institute removal proceedings against people that the law requires to, uh, to us to remove. And then the second is giving the benefit of work authorization status, treating them as though they are lawfully present in the United States. There's no question other than this categorical issue that prosecutors have discretion not to prosecute. This isn't even a prosecution, but putting into a, a civil deportation proceeding, but we'll treat it like the same. But one of the things about prosecutorial discretion that everybody at least used to agree on is you can't give an affirmative benefit in declining to prosecute. 
think of it this way. I get, I occasionally drive in California over the 55 mile an hour speed limit. Are we recording this? I hope not. No, you're among friends. Sometimes I'll pass a highway patrol officer, and if I'm only going a few miles over the speed limit, he exercises prosecutorial discretion not to stop me. But that doesn't give me a legal entitlement to continue to speed down the road. Try telling that to the next officer. Well, I had some prosecutorial discretion back there. Right? Doesn't work so well. But when they went and gave that additional level of benefits, work authorization without any statutory authority, that went well beyond any notion of prosecutorial discretion and I think violated it. And so when Trump says, for both of those reasons, I'm exercising my prosecutorial discretion as the new elected president in a different way than the last one did, and I'm revoking the, the, the benefit that there was no legal authorization to give in the first place. It's certainly well within his authority currently enjoined by the lower courts, but I think it's certainly well within his authority to do that. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Professor Ramjanagalas, uh, at least four members of the U.S. Supreme Court believe that President Obama did have the authority to defer deportation when they upheld his original DACA order or declaration. Tell us what their arguments were and what implications that has for the constitutionality of President Trump's attempt to take the opposite position. So, um, the, the executive has a lot of authority, and, and um, Professor Wassum has given us the history um, to, um, to defer deportation, to engage in prosecutorial discretion. As Professor Eastman said, um, there, there are probably somewhere around 11 million undocumented migrants in the U.S. right now. Um, so it's, it's not a question of, um, you were talking about not enforcing the law. It's not possible to enforce the law. Um, that this, this is a situation that we're in. And, and just as prosecutors make decisions about um, what priority cases are, um, the executive is allowed to make reasonable decisions about what the priority cases are. Um, and, and this has happened. My, um, Shoba Shiva Prasad Wadia at Penn State is the, the nation's leading authority in prosecutorial discretion. So if you're interested in this, you should look up her, her book on the topic. Um, but the idea is that this is well within the president's authority to decide prosecutorial priorities um, and, and to enable certainly this category of, of people to remain here in the US. And, and once that decision was issued, what you have to understand is these people changed their lives in reliance on on the situation that, that, that they're in now, and, and, and that's where some of the due process questions um, were created. And, and so the current administration cannot then arbitrarily um, take away that benefit that was given by the prior executive. Thank you so much for that. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, what you're learning from this incredibly balanced and very illuminating discussion is the need to inform yourself both about uh, the arguments on both sides, to have a historical and institutional perspective, and to listen to scholars of different perspectives as you make up your minds about these difficult legal questions. Um, I think that rather than talking about the caravan, it might be good to get one or two of your questions. We have a microphone with Madison has a microphone, so she'll give you the microphone, and if you could uh, let us know your question. Uh, this question is directed specifically to Professor Eastman. Um, I was born here in, in Rochester, New York, 1974, to parents who later on got a green card and became citizens, but at the time, they were here on a temporary visa. According to you, am I a citizen? We've been treating you as a citizen for a long time, and my proposals in Congress and also for the president, if he does this by executive order, is not to retroactively take away something that we've been acting like existed. But, but under the 14th Amendment, as originally understood, the answer would be no. If your parents had already achieved lawful permanent status, green card holder now, uh, then all the children born to those parents would be citizens. Uh, on a going forward basis, I think that's the right answer. It, it restores back to Congress the power of naturalization to determine how far above that constitutional floor as a matter of policy we should go. Um, but that the Congress, the Constitution vested that primary authority in Congress, not in you know having predetermined it in the Constitution. Jaya, uh, Pro Professor Eastman has uh, articulated that his proposed legislation uh, or the, the the possible executive order would grandfather in those who have been treated as citizens 
uh, up until this point. Uh, what do you think would be the uh, social, political, economic, and legal implications if uh, that grandfathering provision weren't included in legislation or an executive order, if uh, people like our guest would not be considered uh, citizens under, uh, under this new proposal? Let me start by saying I think the proposal is deeply problematic either way, and thanks to our guest in, in the front row for illustrating right how, how your life would have been different had you not been a citizen. Um, but if we don't have the grandfathering proposal, then many people in this room would no longer be citizens. If you go back far enough, right, I, I think there would be many people in this room who um, benefited from birthright citizenship. and. and now I have plenty of mics. mics. <laughs> Conversely, our society benefits tremendously um, from the contributions of all of those citizens. And I, right, I, this is really a question about who we are as a society. And I think we have, and there, I think the reason this provision is in the Constitution is because we have always viewed ourselves as a society of immigrants, as a society that welcomes immigrants, as a society that benefits tremendously from the contributions of immigrants. And so I think that's why um, leaving this to the whims of Congress is not um, only unconstitutional, but a bad idea as a policy matter. Professor Wassum, any other reactions? Well, I want to, oh no, this one's off. <laughs> Can you turn this one? Oh, I'll take this one. Um, <laughs> keep me away from the mic. Um, the, the other key issue here is, and it's not so much a legal question as it is a very practical question, is what document do all of us use to prove our citizenship? And I mean all of us in the room. It's our birth certificate. That is the principal document that each of us use to establish our identity and our right to be here or most of us. Now other people, would, you even use, when you're coming from another country, you use your birth certificate to, to establish your identity and it's part of your documents. But everyone born here relies on that birth certificate. If I could not use my birth certificate to establish that I'm a US citizen, what do I use? Now, when you realize that every state has its own way of recording birth records and their procedures, um, it's not like some countries that have birthright citizenship where you have a, a pretty uh, specific documents. And, and by the way, there is a growing problem around the world of statelessness. And the UNHCR, that's the UN High Commission for Refugees, estimates that every 10 minutes a child is born stateless. We already have women in refugee camps who them giving birth who themselves were born in refugee camps. We, we can talk about places all, uh, around the world where statelessness is a very important issue. I, for one, don't want to have to deal with it in my country, in the United States. But the, the logistical problems and of who would decide what the system of registering our births and establishing our citizenship in lieu of, of, of your birth certificate automatically being recognized, to me is just a bureaucratic nightmare and about the biggest example of big government you could ever imagine. But the interesting thing is um, you gotta be a citizen to get a passport. And up until 1967, uh, the passport form not only asks, were you born here, give us your certificate, but what was the status of your parents? That changed in 1967. No law, no court decision, no executive order changed it. They just kind of did it bureaucratically. So, so through most of our nation's history, now we didn't have the issue before, because people that came here in the early 1800s tended not to come and go. You know, you made that trip across the ocean once in your life, if, if you weren't Ben Franklin anyway. Uh, and so you were here and taking up a permanent domicile. Um, but all the way up until 1967, to get a passport, you had to show not just your birth certificate, but you asked, uh, identify where your parents were from, what their lawful status was. Were they here just temporary visitors? 
modernly, this would address the birth tourism problem, which I think is a huge problem. And most people think it just doesn't make any sense for somebody to pay $10,000 to come in and spend the last month of the pregnancy in Los Angeles or Miami to have a child here and become a citizen as a result of that. There's something missing about being part of the body politic that that conveys. Uh, and, and it's this misbegotten understanding of the 14th Amendment that has induced that kind of um, end run about the normal citizenship process. Thank you for that. I, I think we want to have time for one more question. Madison, do we have a... You've raised the issue of birth tourism. Um, can those people who then, who after the birth, go back to whatever country they came from, permanently be considered under the jurisdiction of the United States. And I have one other comment too. We heard the former director of the census talking about the question of, uh, of legality, citizenship. And he made the point that the community surveys in the interim, they have very sophisticated projection methods. They can get all the information they need from those. They don't need to ask the question. He said there's only one reason to ask the question on the census form is because the census form gives you very granular block by city block information. And certainly the specter that was raised was, what do you do with blocks that have a lot of illegal aliens in them? Do you send in the ICE to those blocks? Thank you. So Professor Wasserman, I'm gonna turn this to you because it sounds like there are two more policy questions or historical questions embedded in that. Um, the first is the, the question of, of birth tourism. Um, and to what extent uh, is this has this historically been a problem? Um, and then the second question is the pragmatic question of whether or not the existing mechanisms for uh, determining how many people in the country are, are, are citizens or how they arrived here, if, uh, if the current uh, processes and surveys are enough or if uh, adding it to the decennial uh, census would help, help us get better numbers. Uh, it, let's start with the birth, birth tourism, and, and that is something that you see articles about. Um, uh, I want to point out that um, the, and this comes up because do you tell someone they can't uh, take a trip to the United States because they're pregnant? Um, and, um, and so it, on some ways, you know, we, we do have ways of dealing with that in terms of issuing visas, allowing people to come in the country, other things beyond addressing something so fundamental as birthright citizenship. So I think we could be, uh, if we really are concerned that people are gaming our system, it's kind of like um, when Congress many years ago realized that sometimes people would cross into the United States to have children as uh, in order to open up citizenship to them. Um, Congress changed the law to say that you couldn't petition for your parents until you were 21. So just by having a child in the United States uh, does not give you you know, easy access to being a legal resident in the United States. And so I guess I, I, I would be uh, reluctant uh, to use something uh, where we might have other ways to deal with, uh, with that, birth, birth tourism or other kinds of uh, peop, uh, situations of, of, of pregnant women coming to the United States. But I'm not particularly concerned about it, to be honest. Um, the census question, um, the downside of suppressing turnout in the census, which is so important to how we apportion our Congress, how we allocate uh, many, many millions and billions of federal dollars to not be in, as inclusive of po as possible of the people who are residing here, who are residing here, living here. Um, that concerns me. And it, um, so the, if, and again, I do think your point about the other surveys, I, I would defer to the person who ran the census is knowing that if they think that the surveys, like the American Community Survey, the current population survey, there's a lot of government instruments that ask questions um, where, of course, it, it makes sense to ask, like, 
very specific immigration related and citizenship questions. But the decennial census is just too important in my mind to our body politic uh, and to how we, we function as a government and a nation as a representational uh, small d, small r, a democratic republic um, to uh, limit it just to citizens uh, or to even ask that question as if it matters because you know, right now, I, I think if the, our fa and I would disagree with, you know, in all due respect to Professor Eastman, our founding fathers, they talked about citizens and when, when you had to be born here to be, to be president, they didn't have it in other places. And they were, you know, they weren't, they were a pretty smart group of people. They, they talked about these things. Um, and this reference to Indian tribes, the, the Indians were a defeated people. They signed treaties and the extent to which they were afforded the opportunity to be a citizen or to be taxed, if you consider that an opportunity, um, that was part of how those treaties were negotiated. And I, I don't see the parallel between how we treated, we were the immigrants, we defeated, you know, they were the defeated people. I don't see the analogy or the closeness. And again, I'm not a legal scholar, but it doesn't click with me that comparing today's immigrants or even immigrants from 100 years ago with Native Americans, I don't get it. Well, Professor Eastman, I wanna give you a chance yeah. to yeah. respond. Professor uh, Wassum has said that the decennial census is too important because of the, the billions of dollars that are on the line, the apportionment of votes, the, the, the implications for small R, small D Republican democracy. Are those, do, do those same reasons, do you think, cut in favor of adding that question to the census. Well, I do. Let's, let's, let's take a case. Uh, I, I've been living in Los Angeles for a long time. Let's suppose Los Angeles got the Summer Olympics, not in 19, no, 2028 when they have it coming again, but in 2020. And they happen to have 5 million people from around the world living in Los Angeles participating in the Olympics while the census was going on. Should California get 10 more congressional seats because everybody who was temporarily here at the time the census was being counted um, should be counted? Of, of course we would say no. I think most people would say no. <laughs> they're temporary visitors. They're not, they're not part of the body politic. The Declaration of Independence talks about legitimate governments being formed by the consent of the governed. What we're talking about here is changing the consensual basis of government from one where only one side is demanding membership that the others have not offered. We don't accept that in any other thing, and yet that's the kind of push that's going on here. I, you know, it's, it's, when, when, when it's that stark, you say, what, what's, what's going on? The same thing's true on the, on the birth tourism thing. People who have no consent to become part of the body politic, right? Consent is a two-way street. Uh, are claiming claim to citizenship by fraudulently seeking a temporary visa, by not claiming, because we don't let them in if they are close to term on pregnancy. That's the, the, the rule, precisely because of this issue. So they're fraudulently submitting an application for a visa, uh, which means they are unlawfully here, and then become part of the body politic by citizens without our consent. This really does threaten the very nature of the foundation of, of, of our government based on those principles in the Declaration of Independence. Well, uh, Professor Ramji Nagales, I think we, uh, we wanna give you the last words. We can wrap up. Uh, what are your thoughts overall on this conversation and what are the, the main uh, takeaways and questions that you want the audience to go home and ask and research on their own? Great. Uh, Thank you so much, and, and thanks to my co-panelists for a terrific um, conversation. And, and, and I think that conversation, and the reason that constitutional conversations are so interesting, and particularly this one, asks about who we are as Americans, right? Are we a country that welcomes a stranger? Um, are we a beacon of humanitarianism and human dignity? Or is this a melting pot where anyone can pursue the American dream? I think, you know, there are lots of politicians using misinformation to make Americans afraid of immigrants. Um, 
But immigrants, I think, make America strong and make America what it is. I think the vast majority of us in this room are the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants, many of whom were viewed as threats <laughs> or undesirables when they came to the U.S. So, so I think these are questions about how, both how we should define the boundaries of our nation and also what our fundamental commitments are um, as a nation. And, and I think our fundamental um, commitments should be to be an open and welcoming society. And I think that's that's um, the vision of America that the Constitution reflects. Let's give a round of applause to our panelists. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.